Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the Impact Collaborative. Again, that's info at real-leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Fantastic. All right, well, we'll get this show on the road here. Here we go now in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today, are the co-authors of Simple Truths of Leadership, 52 Ways to Become a Serpent Leader and Build Trust. Please welcome Randy Conley and Mr. Ken Blanchard. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us today. Good to be with you. Hey, Kevin, nice to be here. So Ken, you've written 65 books. Uh, Of course, The One Minute Manager. Randy, uh, you're a pro at this. You write about leadership all the time. Very influential newsletter. First question I have for you today is, why do you feel the need to collaborate on something like this? Well, I tell you, Kevin, uh, I've been a big fan of servant leadership for a while. And one of the things that, that I noticed and Randy certainly pointed out to me is that great servant leaders build trust with their people and trust and servant leadership go to be- together. And so in this book, it says 52 ways to become a servant leader and build trust. There's 26 on servant leadership and 26 on trust. And we think that they go together. That's why we decided to work together on this. And, and Randy, what were some early experiences? We think about scars and the learning lessons that we have. Mm-hmm. When was the realization for you that building trust is key to leadership? My very first job was at a fast food burger chain. And I remember the first day I went to work, the supervisor who was training me he was just really grilling me on adhering to all the basics, you know, do this, do that. I was working the drive through line and he was just hammering me on, here's exactly what you have to say. Here's how you have to do everything. He was really setting the expectations up here about following all the rules. And then about midway through the shift, he takes a break and he goes back into the kitchen and starts smoking a cigarette, which was completely against the rules. 
And it was, it seems odd. I was only 17 at the time, but I just had a light bulb moment of like, you know what? This job isn't going to work for me because I can't work with someone who is so untrustworthy, who doesn't have the integrity to, you know, walk the talk. So that, that was a real formative, you know, light bulb moment for me very early in my career. You know, it's rare that you find a great manager or leader at a fast food chain. Yeah. And, but, but I have experienced yeah. one. Actually, in my hometown growing up, I remember uh, the manager of the store. He'd always say, stay positive. Every time he'd give you a bag of food, stay positive. And here this guy is working a low-income job, of course, at McDonald's. And every single time he said, stay positive, stay positive. That's the mentality he had. So yeah. service to others is, is a big part of that. Ken, tell me about servant leadership and, and how you also came to this realization. Well, servant leadership is, uh, to me, the only way to go about leading because it's all about we rather than me. And great leaders realize that they're to serve rather than be served. And, you know, when I mentioned it, though, Kevin, to a lot of people, they think I'm talking about the inmates running the prison and trying to please everybody or some religious movement. They don't realize that there's two parts of servant leadership. One is vision, direction, values, and goals, because leadership's about going somewhere. And that's the responsibility of the hierarchy. It doesn't mean you don't involve people, but that's where it all starts. And once that's clear, now you turn the pyramid upside down, and now you, what, it's the servant part of servant leadership. You work for your people who work for their people, who eventually work for the customers. And the great companies I know realize that their number one customer is their people. They take care of their people and train their people and love on their people. Their people go out of their way to take care of their second most important customer, the people who buy and, and use their products. Mm. So it's, uh, it's just key. It's key. It's key for life. It's key. It's a, it's a way to live, mm -hmm. right? Caring yeah. about others. And Ken, let's talk about the one thing that gets in the way of people serving others. The ego. I read this great quote the other day. It was, it's not the mountain we need to conquer, but ourselves. How do leaders get over themselves? Well, you know, there's two ways your ego gets in the way. One is false pride, where you have a more than philosophy. You think you're brighter than and all. And a lot of people don't think it's an ego problem, but fear and self-doubt is an ego problem because you're focused on yourself. And the way you get get uh, through the false pride, which is the biggest one, is humility. And a lot of people think humility is a weakness, but I think it was C.S. Lewis, although Norman Vincent Peale and I mentioned it in our book, The Power of Ethical Management, is that people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. And that uh, people with false pride are people who, you know, if you remember the book, I'm okay, you're okay, they said, the light, worst life position is I'm okay, you're not. And all the research showed that those people were covering up not okay feelings about themselves. And so it begins with feeling good about yourself, which then permits you to be humbled. And then it permits you to be there for other people. The way you overcome fear and self-doubt is to realize that God didn't make any junk. There's a pearl of goodness in every human being, including yourself, but you don't have all the answers. You need the people around you. Mm. Powerful. Yeah, one of the simple truths in our book, Kevin, is uh, a quote that we borrowed from our friend Rick Warren. It's not about you. And that was his famous opening line to his book, The Purpose Driven Life. And that's what servant leaders embody. They understand it's not about them. 
It's about their people. And throughout history, we look at the most effective, long-lasting, successful leaders. They're people who serve others. They understand, as Ken was saying, it's about we, not me. And so if we can get our ego out of the way, then we can really start to serve others. And that's when the magic starts to happen in leadership. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the, let's say, customers that will be purchasing this book are, are many leaders of organizations who have had their employees leave the company. We're going through a massive, um, I guess, ex exit of employees going to new companies because of a, a failed leadership. Ken, how do these leaders restore the trust in this organization? Well, I think the first thing we say to effective leadership with your people is you need to communicate, communicate, communicate. And what are the skills you need? You need to listen more than talk. You need to ask more than tell. You need to be there uh, for uh, people. And uh, so we cover that in our little Simple Truths book, you know, that uh, there's 52 of them. And, and uh, you know, like... One in my section is the key to developing people is to catch them doing something right, you know, which is the second secret of the one minute manager. Mm -hmm. You know, people love to get caught doing right. A lot of times in organizations, the reason they leave every time they see their boss coming, they think, man, they're going to get hit because seagull management is still the number one leadership style around the world. They fly in, make a lot of noise, dump on everybody and fly out. But the servant leader is very, very different because they're there for their people. And, and Randy, you brought up an interesting point about Rick Warren. And mm -hmm. that is a great book, of course, The Purpose Driven Life. Reading it right now, actually, it's funny you say that. Um, he talks a lot about, like you said, uh, you know, God has a plan for you, right? And <clears throat> if you want to make God laugh, tell me you have one. Yeah. And and so how do you, I guess, articulate or convey this message to people in this book who haven't really come to a realization uh, such as that, a, a big mm -hmm. realization that there's a, a greater being out there? Yeah, one of the things we talk about is leadership starts on the inside. It's an inside out process. And so regardless of your faith perspective, uh, the most successful leaders are super clear on their value. What propels them as a leader? And uh, so we recommend that leaders go through an introspective process of determining what we call their leadership point of view, their LPOV. What's your LPOV as a leader? And so that involves looking at um, your early leadership uh, role models and experiences. Who were your role models? What did you learn from them? It involves identifying your values. What's most important to you? Uh, it's really getting clear on what the expectations you have for your team members are and what they can expect of you. And then when you can put all that together in a story and share that with your people, it increases the level of vulnerability and authenticity between leader and their team members that really helps people to see you in a different light. One of the simple truths uh, that we mentioned, and I, I need to look at it because I always get it wrong, was from uh, Colleen Barrett, who was, um, she took over at Southwest Airlines after Herb Kelleher stepped down. 
And Colleen said, people admire your strengths, but they respect your honesty regarding your vulnerability. And that's really showing your heart to your people. And so when leaders can start on the inside, we've learned leadership is much more about who you are than what you do. If you can show that to people, what's on the inside, the behaviors, the actions, uh, they'll follow. Mm. And, and that'll result in the we, not me, you know, leadership not being about you, it's about others. Um, so that's, that's sort of what we would advocate. I love that. And, yeah, Ken. and I also think, Kevin, that uh, when people have a relationship, uh, a spiritual relationship that's bigger than them, uh, it really helps them realize, well, I have a partner here and uh, together, you know, we can accomplish a lot of things. But it's not about me because I'm not the ultimate. I'm not a God. Mm -hmm. I'm just a human being with my own strengths and weaknesses. And what I need to do is explain to my people, boy, I want to be here for you. And we need to share each other's strengths and weaknesses. And I want to tell you, I don't know all the answers. I need you all. And it's going to be we, not me. Mm -hmm. And Ken, Randy talked a lot about, you know, crafting this story, getting clear and then crafting this story. Now, you came to your own understanding with God in your career. Tell us your story about how you get you got clear and when that came into your life, I guess. Well, you know, when the one-minute manager came out, uh, uh, it was so ridiculously uh, successful. I was having trouble taking credit for me, and my wife and I had kind of moved away from our faith. We saw a lot of hypocrisy and all, and I have an old friend, Phil Hodges, that I met as a freshman at Cornell in 1958. And he said, Blanchard, let's go for a walk on the beach in La Jolla. And he said, why do you think this book was so successful? And I said, I don't know, Phil. I, I think God must be involved somehow. And he said, oh, thank God. <laughs> and, uh, and the minute I mentioned that, I started getting interesting calls. You know, when I write a book with Norman Vincent Peale, you know, and I said, is he still alive? I mean, my pop parents had gone to his church before I was born. And not only was he alive, but he was a fabulous human being. And and Norman and his wife Ruth said to my wife and I, he said that uh, uh, if you stop learning, lie down and let him put the dirt on you because you're already dead, you know. And uh, that they just had a wonderful way of looking at at life. Is it it's uh, it's really about uh, loving others and being there for people. That's the power of positive uh, of thinking. And so it's really set me on a journey to sort of say, wow, that's a really powerful thing. And and Norman said, Blanchard, the Lord's always had you on his team. You just haven't suited up yet. Mm -hmm. You know, so suiting up became the cry. And uh, so I have suited up and not in a religious sense because I don't think Jesus came here to start a religion. I think he came here to build relationships around love and being non-judgmental. And I think a lot of people forget about that and get into rules and regulations and all that kind of thing as, as religion. I don't do that. I'm just into how can I make a difference in people's life by loving on them and how can I uh, make a difference by not judging them, but helping them become the best that they can possibly be. Mm. And Randy, when, when you're working with leaders of organizations and you're helping them craft a greater purpose to then serve others, 
What's the change that you've experienced from these leaders and what are the results that you measure in their organizations? Some of the changes I've seen is people get so much more in tune with themselves and their motivations. Um, I worked with a CEO of a company uh, just recently within the last six to eight months, helping him craft his leadership point of view. And when he was done, he delivered it to his executive team. He told the story about how he became a leader and why he stays a leader. And he said to me afterwards, he said, Randy, <clears throat> I had no idea that some of these experiences shaped me so profoundly until I went through this introspective process of really thinking about, it. you know, it's like he, he told stories about his relationship with his father, uh, with his brother, who's sort of a polar opposite of him and sort of the, the dynamics that he saw in his relationship with his dad versus his brother's relationship with his dad and how that shaped his points of view on how he leads in the workplace. And hmm. I, you know, I think we've, we've all probably heard in our working careers, uh, you know, this notion of leave your personal life at home, right? You come up, you come to work, you show up in the office or remotely now and leave all that personal stuff behind. You're here to do a job. That's just a bunch of malarkey, right? I mean, we bring our whole selves into our work. And so until leaders can recognize that about themselves, that they're bringing their whole self to work and it shapes how they show up as a leader and also recognize that all their people show up with a story, with hopes, fears, dreams, insecurities, until we make that recognition and start approaching our leadership from that holistic point of view, we're, we're constantly going to be at odds. We're not going to be, you know, it's sort of like driving with one foot on the accelerator and one on the brake. You kind of, you know, herky jerky. Mm. Um, so let's look at bringing the whole person into the workplace, take our foot off the brake, you know, and let things accelerate. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Ken, from your experience, uh, have you worked in like, post-merger integration where you have a company that just got acquired, right? They've got their own story. Let's say they're a smaller organization. They've had a good leader at their organization. I've been convinced on uh, serving others. And then they get acquired by a big bear, big organization, uh, where there's maybe some a frozen layer of middle management leadership, not as hands-on uh, because it's a, it's a larger organization. What is your theory of change? How do these transitions go and what makes a successful acquisition? Well, it's interesting. Uh, we were approached by a big company to buy us for a lot of money and we went down that road for a while. And then we decided just because of what you said, my God, they're going to throw out a lot of our leaders and change our culture. And I think if you are in a situation where you're bought by somebody else, what you need to do is first concentrate on what leadership style you is important to you. And if you're a servant leader, build your group and show the performance there. So the people start to look and say, wow, I've been observing, you know, the productivity out of your group is really good. What's, what's your secret? And you can start to share it and you can eventually share it up the hierarchy, but don't share it up the hierarchy until you build a relationship up there. I never forget when I was in a business school, we had a Dean that wrote a lot about 
participative management, but he didn't practice practice it. And faculty <laughs> members would go in to tell him what he was doing wrong. He'd throw him out of the office. And I agreed with their perception, but I needed to get to know the guy. So I stopped him in the hall one day and I was just starting my writing career. And I said, George, who had written a lot, I'm writing a couple of things. Would you be able to look at them and give me some feedback? Oh, sure, Ken. And I went in his office and he had flip charts and we had talking about the third meeting on my writing. He said, Ken, what do you think we should do with these jerks we have in the school? The key word for me was we, not jerks, because he's saying we, I'm on his team. And now I could give him feedback on not only what we could do with the people, but what he could do differently. And he would listen, because if you're going to give people feedback, you better have something in your relationship bank. Otherwise, you need a mask and a gun. <laughs> you know, Kevin, we have two simple truths that we talk about that address that principle of managing organizational change, you know, or, or culture changes when there's mergers or acquisitions. Yeah. One is one of the simple truths is a myth about change, and that is people don't resist change. They resist being controlled. They resist being told how to change or what to change. And a companion simple truth to that is people who plan the battle rarely battle the plan. <laughs> and so the idea is when you're involved in these large scale complex change efforts, do it collaboratively, get people involved, get their input, mm -hmm. because people who are involved and have a voice, they have much more ownership over the changes that are happening. Mm -hmm. So much better than just saying, here's the change, here's what you gotta do, go do it, right? We all resist that. Mm -hmm. uh, but get people in, get them on your team and involve them. Um, it's not possible, right, for every single person to have a vote on what we do as an organization, right? That's what leaders are for, we have to make decisions. But everybody can still have a voice. So even if they don't have a vote, give them a voice and incorporate their ideas into your thinking and your planning. And that'll go a long way towards lowering that resistance to change. Mm -hmm. and, and there's multiple different stages of change, right? It's like when, when you get acquired or you're going through a rebranding or a reorg, you know, like, like you said, I love it. People don't resist change, right? Um, but they, what was it? People don't resist change. They resist being controlled. They resist being controlled. And I think that's that's a really powerful message um, that a lot of leaders miss the mark on. I certainly missed the mark on uh, during our last reorg. And it just, I don't know, I think for us, it just took a lot of consistency, uh, a lot of driving the message home, a lot of understanding each other, working with each other, um, driving a, a clear message and simple goals that are achievable over time. And it's still not perfect, uh, but it's definitely been a great learning experience. Collaboration has been key, just like you said, Randy. Ken, I'm curious to know what makes a good collaboration, uh, to add on to Randy's point, and what makes a good facilitator? Well, a good collaboration is when you let your people know that their voice, their opinions are really important and that you're there to listen. It's not just about you. The whole problem is where people think all the brains are up the hierarchy. Uh, and uh, that that is a problem where they really say, you know, boy, 
together we can really probably handle this because uh, I'm counting on what you bring to the, the party and I need you to collaborate with me. I, I don't have all the answers on, on this. And it's so interesting, you know, and, and uh, uh, he meant, Randy mentioned Colleen Barrett. She would say people love your skills, but they admire your vulnerability, which is to realize that you don't know all the answers. And rather than people thinking, well, how come that idiot's a leader? They're going to say, wow, this is going to be fun because we're going to all get to play a part. Mm. And, and collaboration is just reinforces the fact uh, that uh, we're in this thing together and we need each other. Right. Randy, what do you have to say about making an idea or having someone, how do I put this? If you can in implement or insert an idea into someone's head and make it their own, how do you do that? How do you go about that? Like, like Ken's saying. It's it's a collaborative effort. I mm. don't know. Yeah. Ask better questions. How do you make yeah. someone have? How do you have someone take ownership of, of this idea? Yeah, I think it gets to the very heart of the definition of leadership. You know, we define leadership as an influence process. Whenever you're trying to influence the thinking, the behavior, the the actions of another, you're engaging in leadership. And so all of us in some form or fashion are leaders in different aspects of our life, right? We're, we're inevitably trying to influence others. Now, when you say, you know, plant an idea in someone's head, you start to walk the fine line between leadership and manipulation, mm, right? Sure. Like, like trying to, you know, manipulate people and direct them to, or coerce them to follow you. Ken has said for a number of years, if you think you're leading, but no one's following, you're just out for a walk. And too many <laughs> leaders do that because they're trying to coerce people, right? They're like, you must follow me. This, uh, they think by saying, here's the direction we're going. You must follow that they're like charting a vision. When reality, they're not if nobody's following them. And so I think the whole heart of collaboration and leadership is working with people, right? As Ken was saying, collaborate with people, which means you're drawing out their ideas, you're implementing their ideas, you're incorporating them with yours so that together you're moving in a certain direction. That's what leadership's all about. It's about getting everybody on board and heading in the direction that you need to as a team. And what you're trying to do, Kevin, is you're trying to get both great results and great relationships. You know, And one of the things Randy likes to do is put relationships and results and say relationships and results and ask people, what's the most powerful word of these three words? You know, people are arguing about whether it's results or relationship. And a few smart people say, I think there's something going on here. I bet the word ought to be and because it's a both and process mm -hmm. and servant leadership is and one of our simple truths is, is the only way to get both great results and great relationships because the results come from the vision, direction, values, and goals that you set. And then when you turn that pyramid upside down and you work for them, that builds the relationships and those things go together. A lot of people think that the reason for being in business is to make profit. No, profit is the applause. And this is another one of our simple truths, mm. is, uh, is the applause you get for creating a motivating environment for your people so they'll take good care of your customers. Mm. 
I love it. And, and Randy, uh, I went straight to the trust section when I opened the book. I think it's um, something that it's it's not taken lightly here at Real Leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the things that we've experienced over time is employees or leaders of organizations building resent, which is also in, in Rick Warren's book as well, resent or envy being two key motivators of overreactions in a company. Um, how do you regain trust when someone has resent toward you or simply has a lack of respect? Yeah, yeah. One of the myths of trust is that it takes forever to build and just a second to break, right? We've all probably heard a saying along those lines. True, solid trust is incredibly resilient. More often the case is we have these little eroders over time, these micro erosions of trust over time that that lower the level of trust in a relationship. So I think the way to start restoring trust is first, acknowledge that there's a situation. You know, one of the most valuable things we've learned from the 12-step recovery process, right, is step number one, acknowledge that you have a problem. You can't really do anything until you admit and acknowledge you have a problem. So that's the first step. After that, I think it's really key to apologize. You know, between Ken and I, we have, what, 93 years of marriage? with our spouses, right? Ken, Ken and Margie are coming up on 60, is it Ken? Yeah. 60, and I've been married 33. So we've apologized a lot. So we know what it takes to deliver (laughs) a good apology. Um, And an apology is not necessarily an admission of wrongdoing. You know, when you're in a low trust situation, apologizing can also be taking ownership for the relationship. So you don't have to be at blame to apologize in order to restore trust, because what you're doing is you're saying, I value this relationship more than being right, so I'm going to take the steps to to mend the fence here. Hmm. And so you acknowledge, you apologize, and then the third is where the rubber hits the road. You have to act differently, right? You have to act in more trustworthy ways. Um, so I, I think if you can follow those three broad steps, you can be well on your way to restoring trust. But it does take both parties, mm. right? Trust is a two-way street. If if both parties aren't interested in restoring that relationship, it, it, it's not going to work long term. And I love the the correlation between relationships and results, Ken, of what you were referring to earlier. And Randy, you just touched on. A lot of the leaders are leaders at the dinner table, right? Those are the people that we like and love. Uh, Those are the recruiters that are going out. They're able to sit down with the family members and break bread. Uh, Ken, personally, don't tell me too much about your relationship, but personally, how have you been able to balance or find a nice medium of at home and in office? Well, we kind of run those things together because our son, Scott, is now the president of our company. Oh, wow, cool. And our daughter, Debbie, is vice president of uh, marketing. And Margie's brother, Tom, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, he's our CEO. Uh, And Scott's wife, Madeline, has run our coaching business for a long time. So we're really a family-run company. But Peter Drucker told me years ago, Kevin, nothing good happens by accident. Put some structure on it. And so... When they all started joining the company 25 years ago, we started a family council 
which includes Margie and I, Scott and his wife, and Madeline, and Tom and his wife, Jill, and our daughter, Debbie, and, and, uh, and all. And we meet once a month as a family with an outside consultant. And our job is to make sure that the family doesn't screw up the business and that the business doesn't screw up the family. And we've been doing that for 25 years and nobody has ever missed one of those monthly meetings. Mm. And uh, we recommend that kind of people with family business. The biggest problem with family business is that people don't communicate. And then all of a sudden people's feelings are hurt. How come this person's getting more than this and all that? And they just don't have a vehicle. Well, create a vehicle. I love Drucker saying, put some structure uh, on it. And uh, mm -hmm. so in addition to running the company, we have a family that's really important. And how is that, how do you balance that with the employees in the organization? I mean, obviously, I mean, your, your you know, uh, children feel uh, an ambition to work harder. I mean, how, how do they balance it with the other employees in the organization so that they don't feel there's any favoritism or anything like that? Well, one of the things that we do is if we have an opening in our company and one of our employees recommends a family or uh, or a uh, friend for the position and they get it, we give them a bonus mm -hmm. because we want our company built on families and people that we love and care about and and all and, you know. And so uh, uh, there's a number of families. I mean, Randy and his wife, his wife works at the company too. And mm -hmm. we had one couple that had uh, three kids that were in the company too. Uh, and uh, so it's really is ours. Uh, Margie's brother, Tom, his daughter, uh, Julie, just joined our company for the first third generation one joining the, the company. And so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fun is to realize that we want to be a family business in the full sense of, of the word. Uh, and so uh, that that's the way, way we operate. Incredible. Kevin, Ken mentioned uh, communication earlier, right, as being really important. And and you have to put your money uh, where your mouth is. And so uh, the Blanchard family has always shared the financials with the company. Every month we publish our financial statements. Everybody sees how we're doing financially. Uh, Scott, who's our president now, um, one of his personal values is forthrightness. So he sends every couple of weeks an all-company email of everything that's happening in the company, and he shares straightforwardly what he thinks about things, what's working well, what's not. And when you have a level playing field like that, an open communication forum, it it helps people understand where they're at. You know, it, it reminds me of one of our simple truths, uh, which is um, related to boundaries. And um, let me read it to you here. Uh, it's one of my favorite. It's in Ken's section. And it is uh, create autonomy through boundaries. Right. People often think that boundaries are limiting right? That they lock things in, they put you in a box, when actually the opposite is true. Uh, you know, if you think of like a river, the, the river banks serve as the boundary, they channel the flow of that energy, that river, right? A river without banks is just a large water puddle, right? And so when we have clear boundaries, whether it's around communication or how things work in an organization, it really...
really gives people freedom to operate within uh, those boundaries. So that, that's been really helpful for us as a family-run organization. Autonomy, decentralization. When, when did this become integrated into the organization, Ken? And, and, and where have you seen the results show up? Well, we've tried to set up boundaries all all along. You know, why are we in business? You know, what business we're in? What are we trying to accomplish? What are our values and and all? Because once people see that, and uh, decisions and uh, disagreements go within that, you know, that uh, as uh, Randy was saying, one of our colleagues said, "A river without banks is a large puddle," you know. And one of the things that you you see. For example, in Washington now, we don't have a vision for our country anymore. We don't even agree on values anymore. I would think freedom of speech would be a value, but if you disagree with some group, they don't say, let's talk. They try to surround your business and put you out of business. And so we need leaders who kind of get us back to creating some kind of vision that we can then make decisions and operate under because uh, the Bible, it says people without boundaries, uh, you know, are you know, lost there, they perish. Uh, and so that's why it's so important. Yeah, I have a tremendous uh, respect for family-run organizations. Um, Releaders is a family-run organization as well. Um, and, and those arguments, right, with your family, with your father, with your mother, those happen sometimes outside the company and you do your best to make sure they don't happen uh, in a meeting. What's been the most challenging for you both, since you both have your family in the company, what's been the most challenging uh, part of, of, of sticking with it, I guess? Well, we have our family council, which helps us uh, there, you know, and, and uh, but we've had a pretty open book on, on saying if there's disagreements, let's talk about it. Mm. Our big strategy is let's talk, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think uh, I think that's really key. I mean, Scott, our son's holding these, uh, you know, biweekly meetings with everybody in the company, you know, saying here's what's happening and all besides his, his written messages, you know. What questions do you have? What concerns do you have? We need to hear that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we have 250 people, which is so it's not a minor Right. Uh, deal. And uh, so it's uh, part of that communicate, communicate, communicate. Uh, I'm, I'm chuckling a little as Ken says communicate because uh, Scott has said a number of times when he was a kid and would get in trouble, the worst thing was uh, his mom and dad would say, okay, let's sit down and talk about this. <laughs> you know, Scott was sure. like, I'd much rather get a whooping and be sent away, you know, than having to sit there and talk it through. Um, but it really is communication. And so, for instance, like my wife and I, uh, we have a little a saying in place. We'll say, okay, this is husband-wife talk now. You know, that's our phrase. This is husband-wife talk. So that mm-hmm. means what we say there is between us. It's you know, we're encouraging each other or sort of venting to each other, but we leave it there. We don't bring it into work. It doesn't get out to any of our other colleagues or impact the way we show up at work. So it really is about communication and having clear boundaries uh, and sticking to those because they they help you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that is why we think this book can be helpful because you can sit with your people 
and and you could take one simple truth a week for 52 weeks or you could take one section and and share it with them and say what do you all think how can we use this this is something that kind of struck me what about you and all it's and it's continually what about you what do you think here's what i think hmm. it's uh uh, sharing who you are as a human being and letting them share who they are. You know, what you're doing, you're building a legacy here and you're leaving one. You're thinking a lot about the long-term vision uh, about leadership, the organization, the people within it. In Simple Truths, you have a chapter on uh, creating, I think it was a motivating environment, motivational environment. And what is motive? It's the reason for doing something. Do you do a self-assessment with everyone in the organization or how do you create a motivational environment? Well, we once a year really have a survey we've developed around the whole employee employment engagement of philosophy and say, how are we doing? So we, you know, formally do that and see where our areas of, that we need to still work on and all, and everybody's pretty open on, on that because they know they're not going to get clobbered. We want their honest opinion. So uh, we look at ourselves as a learning organization. Uh, that we're not perfect, but we're moving down the road constantly and saying, how can we get better? How can we do this? And, you know, we're 42 years old as a company and less than 5% of the companies that start ever last that long. And so it's pretty amazing. And I mentioned to you before the show, we we came on a one-year sabbatical leave to California, and we're going back to the University of Massachusetts and ran into the Young Presidents Organization, and I did some sessions for them, and they said, what are you going to do at the end of the year? We're going back to the university. I said, no, you're not. They said, what do you mean? No, you're going to start your own company, and we said, how are we going to do that? We can't even balance our own checkbook, you know, <laughs> and they said, we'll help you, and we got five YPO presidents from around the country to be our advisory board and fly to California and help us set up the company and stay with us and a number of years uh, in there to get us going, which is really an amazing, fabulous thing. And to be a member of YPO, you have to become president before you're 40 years old. And in the old days, you had to have at least 50 people working for you and 5 million in sales. So they uh, are, you know, smaller type companies, but they're entrepreneurs and they're just so interested in learning. When we used to do sessions for them, you know, rather than people sitting in the back of the room, they would race to see who could get in the front rows. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of fun. So life is about learning and excitement, and we're lucky to be part of that. Let's talk about that real quick since we're wrapping up and our time is coming to a close. Ken, what have you learned more from, the successes or the failures? Well, I think it's probably a, a, a both and again, you know, a, that uh, – you know, when we've made a mistake, you know, Margie and I say, okay, what are we going to learn from that? And uh, we also like to celebrate, you know, we have a lot of celebrations of in our company when things go well. We uh, so we, have, we have now a, uh, a uh, whole program where if you catch other people doing things right, you know, they can get points, you know, <laughs> and points bring back you know, goodies and different kinds of things. And so we have just, just a fun way for people to be catching each other, doing things right and supporting each other. And, and all again, put some structure on it, as Drucker said. Now, Randy, um, to you, what have you learned more from successes or failures? 
Well, not to be a copycat, but I will, you know, uh, it's a little bit of both. You know, I, I think uh, the popular saying is you learn more from your failures than your successes, which, you know, generally, I, th I think there's a lot of truth to that. But, um, you know, being in the field of leadership development, I feel super lucky in the sense that I've been able to learn from all of the clients that we've worked with. I've, I've worked with Ken for over 25 years. And so I've gotten to see, uh, live vicariously through our clients, you know, learn from their successes and their failures. And hopefully I've incorporated those lessons into my own leadership practices. Um, and, and I would say learning from others, you know, the people that I've led, um, that's probably been the biggest learning for me over the years is um, I've always considered my teams like living laboratories, leadership laboratories, you know, where we've learned from each other. And, and uh, I think if leaders can sort of helicopter, you know, above themselves and kind of look down on themselves as like a, a third party and, and objectively look at how they're interacting with their team, both good and bad, I think tremendous learning can come from that because you sort of detach yourself from all the emotions and you, you know, involved and just sort of look at yourself objectively. So those have been some things that, that I've learned. Well, you seem to be both in alignment in and out of the company. Uh, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you both today. I've certainly learned a lot to go on that. Now let's bring this bad boy home. Ken, what is your definition of a real leader? A real leader is somebody who realizes that leadership's not about them. It's about the people that they lead and they believe it's we, not me, that I've said a number of times and I, I'll say it over and over again. And uh, I learned that from my father who retired as an admiral in the Navy. I won the president of the seventh grade in New Rochelle, New York. And I came home and I'm all pumped up. And my father said, Ken, now that you're a leader, your leadership uh, training begins. He said, don't ever use your position as president. Remember, great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. Mm, powerful, powerful. And Randy, what about you? Uh, for me, a real leader is someone who walks the talk, that their, their values are aligned in terms of what they say and what they do, and they use their leadership power and service of others. How can I make the lives of those that I lead better? Uh, and I think if leaders can do that, then that's what makes them a real success at the end of the day. For Randy Conley and Ken Blanchard, go out there, realize that leadership is not about you. Walk the talk and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, gentlemen. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20.
to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes, enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode, and always keep it real.